although it says the mechanics of diplomacy up there, the title of this talk is actually uh, How Foreign Policy is Made. And what I want to do is, uh, first of all, consider very briefly the, uh, if you like, the objective determinants of any state's foreign policy, the things from which uh, a state has to proceed when um, developing foreign policy, then to look uh, at, the, at the, uh, the institutions which are involved in uh, that uh, act of developing policy. And then thirdly, and this is sometimes the bit which is more difficult to pin down, particularly for people who are looking from outside the process, namely the process, how it actually happens, what actually takes place when foreign policy uh, is being created. So if we can start with the objective determinants, could, would somebody like to tell me what they think are the things, the principal things which determine what a state's foreign policy will be? Sorry? Objective for the state, for example, some states uh, aims at so, uh, surviving in a very difficult region. Mm -hmm. And some aims, other states may aim at uh, becoming a regional power or superpower. And you have to set objectives and define your goals. Yes, but before you, you start to set your objectives, what, what is the objective determinant? that helps you decide what your objectives are going to be? Nation. Sorry? National interest. National interest. Sorry? History. Did you say history? history. Yes. I, I agree that history is certainly one, but what, what predates history, if you like? I think first objective of all states is survive. No, no, but I'm not talking about states' objectives. I'm talking about what are the objective determinants, I used to say, the things that are outside the control of the foreign policy-making process. Geography. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay. Obviously, history is very significant in determining how states create their foreign policy, but a lot of that history flows from geography. And it is obvious when you say it, you know, the, the foreign policy of Mexico is clearly dominated by its relationship with America. Um, the foreign policy of Vietnam is dominated by its relationship uh, with China, and we've just seen that Georgia's external policy is inevitably dominated by its relationship with Russia, Egypt, Israel, and so on. These things are self-explanatory, but they are actually things which, from which states must proceed when they are <coughs> deciding what their foreign policy is. Sometimes this, the effect is rather more subtle as well, I mean, I'm sure that the inhabitants of Switzerland uh, care deeply about uh, uh, global warming, for example. But you can bet your bottom dollar that the inhabitants of Tonga and Kiribati care even more deeply because unless something's done about it, their countries will disappear below the level of the sea. So there are other ways in which uh, states' foreign policy emerges from their physical uh, situation. And what I'm going to do now, just very briefly, if you'll forgive me, because I was a British diplomat, so I know a little bit about British foreign policy, is just to examine some of the uh, objective, objective factors which have helped to determine how the British uh, uh, government determines its, its foreign policy. What is, the, um, what is the most obvious characteristic of uh, the United Kingdom? 
in geographical terms? It's an island. Absolutely right. It's an island. And where is that island located? Hmm? On the left of Europe, thank you. Well, it's actually on the left and a bit up, isn't it? It's on the northwest corner of the continental landmass of Europe. And so that means that, inevitably, being inhabitants of an island, we are historically a seafaring nation. So we have gone out in ships around the world. And that has made us traders as well. But because we're close to Europe, we are deeply concerned about things that take place on the continent of Europe. But for much of our history, we've avoided excessive, in the views of British uh, um, uh, politicians, excessive involvement in continental European affairs. And uh, I mean, we've talked, I think, amongst ourselves about the, the different cultural uh, waves that have impacted upon the United Kingdom which up until the 11th century were waves of uh, um, actual invasion. Uh, but since 1066, no nation has physically invaded these islands. We've been bombed. Uh, we've had people coming and uh, attacking us with guerrilla ta tactics and stuff of that kind. We've had terrorism, but no nation has ever actually occupied these islands since the 11th century. So inevitably, the way that society and culture has developed here has been influenced by that fact. The other thing about the UK is that it is neither too hot nor too cold. It's in a temperate uh, climate zone. It has reasonably fertile soil. It has or had a limited amount of the essential raw materials, coal, steel, uh, wool and so on, to enable it to develop as an industrial nation but not enough to be self-sufficient in the way that, for example, the United States uh, uh, is. So we have always been involved in a search for raw materials of one kind or another. And the industrial, the economic story of the United Kingdom is of bringing in uh, from the outside world raw materials, converting them, and then exporting them as, as manufactured goods. Or more recently, we've obviously shifted into services. Now, all those, all those things have determined the way in which uh, we have approached, or our forebears have approached, uh, the making of foreign policy. We were an imperial power, but it was a bit of an accident, really. That it, it, nobody actually said, we will become an imperial power, but traders went out around the world, made contact with different peoples, began to bring trade back into this country and sooner or later inevitably the government followed and planted a flag, created colonies and so on. Um, and if we look at the relationship with Europe, there was a great obsession in the 19th century and even uh, in the early part of the 20th century with the balance of power in Europe, with, with, with how to make sure that no one power would become so mighty that it would threaten the security of England. The, the classic example, of course, was Napoleon, uh, where Britain made a number of alliances with other countries in Europe to fight against Napoleon, to, to prevent him from doing this. Subsequent alliances in the 20th century were opposed to Germany. And all this was achieved without Britain establishing a long-term presence uh, in Europe. In, in a much earlier period, there were tiny little 
British enclaves in France, for example. But I mean, in the in the modern period that we're looking at now, Britain has has been involved, but not deeply involved and embedded in continental European affairs. Um, and of course, when we get into the nuclear era, uh, then there is a need for collective security, which Britain has never previously really felt. And so we become a member of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, along with people like yourselves, uh, on the basis that together we can be uh, safer than we would be uh, independently. We were very late to join the European Union. The European Economic Community came into being in 1957, and Britain finally joined in 1973. And even now, even though we've been in the European Union for 25 years, and even though, as we've discussed in earlier lectures, it is now part of the natural instinct of the British diplomat to consult with his European colleagues uh, over crises and, uh, and uh, issues that arise. Even now, there is a perception from within the European Union, looking out to the United Kingdom, that we are, in some sense, reluctant partners in this enterprise. It's partly a cultural thing. The, the, the British um, psyche is informed by liberal philosophy of people like John Stuart Mill and Locke, uh, who tended to be uh, advocating prag a pragmatic approach to life. You know, let's see, does this work? If it does work, if it doesn't harm people, if it's acceptable to the most people, then let's do that. Then we move on and try something else. As opposed to the great continental uh, intellectual thinkers, people like Hegel, Marx, uh, and so on, who, and Kant, who uh, had great ideological constructs within which they recommended people to think and within which a lot of European statesmen have created their policies. So, I mean, there are two sides to this, of course. Uh, it's great to be pragmatic, it's great to be flexible, but sometimes we are accused of lacking vision. Um, we, on the other hand, tend to think of some of our European partners as being um, excessively uh, uh, fantasizing about some great, marvelous European superstate which will never uh, come into being in, in the practical world. But anyway, there is this clear distinction in the cultural approach, and it's born essentially out of the fact that we're an offshore island uh, in Europe. And we, so we looked outward to the world through our seaborne trade and, uh, and our empire that was, and we still retain very strong links with uh, those countries who formed part of the empire before and no longer do. Uh, so we have the Commonwealth, which is no longer the British Commonwealth, it is the Commonwealth of which Britain happens to be uh, a member, uh, which brings together uh, a group of nations who share certain characteristics, law, frequently language, uh, culture, and obviously a shared history uh, in many cases. Um, and we have that other uh, quite important former colony uh, across the Atlantic Ocean called the United States, with whom we do have, uh, although I refuse to use the expression, a special relationship, we do have a relationship which is characterized by certain special elements in it, which are not shared by, for example, uh, the relationship that the Germans and the French have uh, with the Americans. Now, having said all that, I have to just ex express one word of caution, because the other thing that we've been doing all week is explaining to ourselves how we live in a globalized society and how everything impacts upon everybody worldwide. And this is certainly the case, that this, this, these geographical determinants 
that we've looked at here are tempered to a degree by the globalization process which uh, we're all living through. But not that much. It's certainly true that carbon emissions in China have an impact on people who live in Chile or in Turkey if it comes to that. Um, so just take off 5% of what I've just said for the globalization effect. Okay, let's move on then to look at the institutions. I don't want to spend too much time on this because you all know about foreign ministries and I'm looking forward tomorrow to hearing two presentations from two of the groups who are going to tell me how, what foreign ministries do or how they work. <laughs> but I just wanted to remind you, if you like, of the, of the essential elements of the institutions which are involved in the foreign policy process. Now this is not the Turkish foreign ministry and it's certainly not the Foreign and Commonwealth Office in London. This is an imaginary ideal ministry if you like. But you will recognize the essential elements in this. We have a bunch of people here who deal with countries and we have a bunch of people here who deal with problems that are global problems. And then we have people who provide services, people who tell you <coughs> whether what you want to do is legal or not and the people on the right-hand side who make sure you get paid and, uh, <laughs> and all the rest of it. And then somewhere in the mix there will be some very bright young people like yourself sitting in a policy planning unit dreaming of the future and thinking of marvellous things that might happen. And somewhere in the mix there will be people dealing with the media and people taking the longer-term actions uh, entailed in public diplomacy. Sometimes they'll be together as they now are in the Foreign Office in London, sometimes they'll be different, it doesn't matter. And atop the pile, there will be a senior civil servant who's in charge of the whole lot, and he will be uh, tugging his forelock to the politician who actually takes the final decisions on these things. So that's, if you like, a, a, an ideal foreign ministry. And within this organization, there are clearly systems and processes for making sure that whatever decisions may be taken in the foreign policy field take into account the bilateral relationship with the countries that are involved and the policies that your country has developed to deal with these big issues like security, energy, trade, the environment and so on. So there's all, the, the, any foreign ministry will have some kind of matrix activity going on to ensure that these interests mesh together in policy <coughs> and um, as I say we must make sure that whatever we're doing is legal. Now it would be great if that was all there was to it but as we've also discussed uh, this week and as you uh, know in any case there are a lot of other people around who are punch putting their noses into the foreign ministry's business and I mean the only people in this uh, chart here who are actually subordinate to the foreign ministry are you know, the posts overseas. They're the ones that get the instructions and do what they're told. Everybody else is getting in the way of a nice easy life. Whether on the left-hand side they're from other government departments who are wanting to make sure that you take the defense issues into account, that you take the trade issues into account, or whether they're from the finance ministry who want to make sure you don't spend too much money on anything, the intelligence services are, strictly speaking, more of a service to you because they should be providing you with additional helpful information in the policy-making process. Parliament, of course, is always interfering. Uh, and you will be get, getting uh, people from, pesky people from embassies in your 
in Angkor will be coming and knocking on your door and saying, you should be doing this differently. My country would like you to behave in a different way from the way that you're behaving. So on the official side, if you like, on the left-hand side, there are all these people interfering in the process. And then on the right-hand side, you've got the non-government people, the businesses, the trade unions, the academics. They've all got their ideas about the way you should be doing your job. So have the press and so have the public. And if that wasn't bad enough, you've got the Prime Minister sitting on your head as well with his own ideas. And the Cabinet, the collective, the rest of the government uh, in political collective uh, action. May I ask a question? You may certainly ask a question. Yes. Term used by the UK mm. or by another country? It's certainly a, 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 an expression which is in common use in the UK. Uh, it's used to embrace <coughs> embassies, consulates, high commissions, anything which is British government uh, representative office overseas. Okay, you could, I could say mission. But if you say mission, you're limiting yourself to embassies and high commissions in capital cities. Post in, includes consular posts as well. You could certainly say that if you would prefer to. Okay. All right. Then going to the, the, the overseas post part of this, we have, once again, this is a, a completely false uh, um, embassy. It doesn't exist in real life, but this is roughly the sort of shape that embassies are like. They've got political sections which usually include the press and public affairs. They've got economic and commercial sections consular sections, defence sections, and management sections. And they have an ambassador who's in charge, and he usually has a number two. I don't want to spend too much time on that because it's very obvious. But again, these embassies are subject to the same kind of external influences as we have observed uh, at, the, uh, at the foreign ministry end. Overseas, they're dealing with the foreign ministry, uh, other government departments, parliament, other embassies on the left-hand side, on the other side, with all the other non-governmental entities. But they're also, I'm, I'm talking now from the British experience, I, it, I'd be interested to know how this works with Turkey, but there's also direct contact, not mediated by the foreign ministry, with the equivalent uh, bits of um, the international uh, structure in the home country. So if, you know, if I were to draw connecting lines between all the various bits and pieces on there and the embassy and the foreign ministry, it would be a mess, and which is why I haven't done it. But you can imagine this uh, great network of, uh, of uh, communication going on. All of it which is, in one sense or another, influencing this uh, process of uh, making policy. Which then brings me to what, in some ways, can be the, the, the most elusive part of this, which is the actual process. <clears throat> we know what a country like the UK, the sort of parameters within, within which it is bound to operate because of its geography and its history. We know these are the, these are the actual mechanics of the process, process, but what is actually happening in that process? Well, perhaps you can tell me what, let's start of all, what starts the foreign policy process going? What is the, what is the thing that, that sets it off? Yeah? 
If it's, I mean, that's, that's, that's a sort of existential thing, isn't it? I mean, what is it... Oh, well, I mean, I, I mean, it seems to me that there are two possibilities. Either the process begins spontaneously or it's provoked. Okay. Now, how, do, how does a farm policy process begin spontaneously? What usually happens? Sorry? Well, I, and I've, I've put the crisis into the second ca category, which is, which is something that provokes a foreign policy response. Sp a spontaneous beginning to foreign policy comes from an individual, does it not? It has to come, probably it will come from a foreign minister. A new foreign minister comes into the foreign ministry and he says, I've got this great idea, make it work. Isn't that the way it works? I mean, I, I've experienced this. Uh, when the Labour Party came into power in 1997, <coughs> Robin Cook became Foreign, Minister, Foreign Secretary, and he said, I think that British foreign policy should have an ethical dimension. Uh, but that immediately got transmuted into an ethical foreign policy in the press, and he did his best for the next four years to try and live with this uh, thing which he had said he wanted because as soon as he started looking at the individual detail of all the policies that he'd inherited from the previous government who he had accused of pursuing a foreign policy that didn't have an ethical dimension he found it was very difficult to do anything very different from the sort of things that they were doing and indeed his predecessor uh, as foreign secretary Douglas Hurd uh, almost exploded when he heard this uh, term and said are you suggesting Mr Cook that I was pursuing an unethical foreign policy. But this is, this is what happens. People come new into office, and it can happen as well. It doesn't have to be the, the, the politician. It doesn't have to be the foreign minister. It can be a new head of department comes in, put in charge of human rights, shall we say, in the foreign ministry, and he says, I, we want, I want, to do, want to make a big push on this, and I'm going to pick out these two or three countries, and we're going to have a good go at them. It's usually, the impetus usually comes from somebody who arrives new on the scene and wants to demonstrate that he or she has got something different to offer that's better than what was there before. Um, but that's relatively rare. Of course, it does happen. And you're absolutely right that the, the thing that tends to generate foreign policy is some event or other. Something happens that makes you, it makes it necessary for you to devise a policy to deal with it. And it could be anything. It could be something really dramatic, uh, let's say Russia invading Georgia, I can imagine that all the foreign ministries in all the capitals of member states of NATO have been this week examining their policy towards Georgian membership of NATO. What do we do? What do we recommend in these circumstances? Should we say that we think that NATO membership for Georgia should never be contemplated now. What kind of signal would that send to the Russians? Should we say we should invite Georgia straight in now because this would be a clear demonstration to the Russians that NATO will not be intimidated? Or should we wait and see what everybody else thinks about this? But anyway, it doesn't matter what the precise answer is to this question. The reason why you're asking yourself this question is because the bloody Russians have, in have invaded Georgia. It's an outside event that's required you to respond. Now, it doesn't have to be as dramatic as that. It can simply be a statement of policy by another government that suddenly 
requires a response of some kind. If the Greek government says something about the Cyprus uh, situation, the Turkish government is going to have to think of how to make some kind of response, and so on and so forth. So, um, and it need not again be, uh, it needn't, needn't be another government uh, statement, it needn't be a great dramatic event, it may simply be that uh, the foreign minister opens up his um, mail one day and there's a very, very stiff letter from um, the leader of the trade union, uh, trade unions in the country about something going on in Burma or somewhere of that kind and what is the government going to do about it. So the, the impetus comes from many different sources. It may come from business groups. Business groups may say, <clears throat> you know, we're having a really tough time trying to get our goods into this country because we're facing all kinds of barriers, will you please do something about it? So there has to be some kind of strategy developed to make representations to the country concerned to do away with these barriers which are you know, not compliant with WTO uh, requirements or something of that kind. It doesn't matter. There is also Parliament, of course, and we've seen in our discussion of United States foreign policy that in America Congress actually has a very powerful role and can initiate foreign policy. It can certainly exert pressure on the President uh, or on the State Department to do things. Um, in this country, as I also said, the parliamentary influence is relatively weak, but nevertheless, if enough members of Parliament ask questions about the human rights situation in Kosovo or whatever it may be, ministers are impelled to do something in response and a policy will have to be developed. What is the mechanism I mean, we've got the actual sort of institutional mechanism there. What is the mechanism by which policy is decided? Brainstorming. I'm sure that there's a lot of brainstorming, yes. But brainstorm, what does brainstorming do? Brainstorming throws up a lot of ideas. Now, how is a decision to... Yeah. More of information, from, for example, from uh, down to top. And at each level, there are some different considerations mm -hmm. about uh, different elements of the foreign policy issue. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and it depends on the importance of the topic. Mm -hmm. uh, the, 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 the decision mm -hmm. level mm -hmm. depends on the importance of importance of the topic. Mm -hmm. If it is very, a very critical issues, mm -hmm. it can be directed to the minister or the government as a whole, which decide right. on it. Okay. Or if it's less important. And what do we what do we call this this process? Decision making. Hmm? Sorry? No, well, maybe, I don't know. Is this not, do you not understand the expression submission? Is the word submission in the English language not, not a factor for you? Okay, fine. Well, in English, the, the, it is a policy submission that we're talking about. You talked about the flow of information, but it's more than a flow of information. It is actually uh, submitting a set of proposals for decision by people at the appropriate level within the organization. And that is, the, that is the, 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 the classical way in which these thing, decisions are taken. You may get an immediate steer from your minister. He may say, my general instinct on this is to do X. But actually the process by which the decision tends to be taken, except in extreme crisis, is for the people who actually are expert on the subject to put together ideas which are then submitted through the system until they reach the appropriate level for decision. Now, 
I think I have probably said on more than one occasion that it is certainly not my intention to try to make you behave like British diplomats. Um, but I do think that we can identify in this policy submission process certain irreducible elements without which uh, an intelligent decision is not possible. Uh, and I would like to suggest that these are what they are. Ah, that's interesting. <laughs> I've obviously got the wrong slide in. Okay, well I'll have to do a sort of all singing dancing. You'll have to imagine there's a slide up there and I'm reading off it. Um, I'll shut this down altogether because it's completely useless now. Um, the, what is the first thing that you need to put in a policy submission? What is the first thing that the person, next person looking at that submission needs to know? The absolute first thing. It, sorry? Yes. Yeah. What is the problem? What is the problem which we are trying to solve? For example, what do we do about Georgia's NATO membership? For example. Okay. Then you need to have, and you said background, I think, you need to have an analysis of that problem. You need to be able to understand, the people taking the decision need to be understand what is the potential impact on national interests of whatever decision you are planning to take, or what is the potential impact on national interests of this situation unless we do something about it. And what is the position of all the other actors involved in this scenario? So again, if we take the very easy question of NATO membership for Georgia, what, does, what would it mean for Turkey if Georgia became a member of NATO? What do we think the United States thinks about Georgia being a member of Turkey? What do we think the Greece thinks about it? And so on and so forth. You need to have information about other people's likely response to this situation and you need to be able to decide what the impact on the national interest is of the situation as it is and of the various courses of action which may be open to you to recommend. And then you need a recommendation. You need to say, having looked at the problem, decided what the problem is, looked at all the background information where everybody else stands, you need to make a recommendation. You need to say, this is what I think needs to be done. And in doing that, you clearly need to have some kind of risk assessment attached to the course of action which you are proposing. You may have three options. So do nothing, do a lot, wait and see, something like that. You need to be able to say what are the risks and dangers and possible benefits attached to each of those courses of action and therefore what on balance is the course that you recommend. I think somebody said in another lecture, or maybe it was me who said it, that generally speaking in major issues of foreign policy there isn't a good course of action you are choosing between several bad courses of action and what you're trying to find is the least bad course of action the thing that will cause least damage to you um, and so you need to weigh between various uh, courses of action and offer an assessment of which of these is the one most likely to enhance your national interest and you need to be able to say in advancing this argument who subscribes to it other than 
you. In other words, do the legal advisers say that this is a course of action which is sustainable in international law? If it's an energy issue, has the energy ministry been consulted uh, and agreed and so on and so forth? You need to try to get as many people, we have an expression in, the, in, in English, to bind their hands to the plough. Is this an expression you understand? When you're ploughing a field, and you want everybody to be involved in ploughing that field, you bind their hand to the plough so that they're all dragged along with you. You need to bind as many hands to the plough as possible so that uh, this course of action clearly is sustained throughout the, the government machine. And you need also to have clear proposals for how to handle the media and how to handle Parliament. Now obviously, in most cases, uh, you can't just write your um, submission straight away because you need to do a lot of consulting before you can get to that point. Uh, and this is uh, where you need to consult within the foreign ministry, within this matrix that uh, we've identified, with, with your posts overseas to get as much information as you can about where other people stand and what the situation is like on the ground, with other government departments to make sure their interests uh, are taken into account, with other governments if you are in a position to consult directly with other governments to find out where they're standing uh, on things and with other stakeholders, whether it's business or non-governmental organisations or whatever. How do you do this? How do you do this consulting? <laughs> Meetings, thank you. Obviously if people are not physically located in the same place, it's difficult to have a meeting. But a lot of these things will in involve meetings. Uh, you may also have virtual meetings involving teleconferencing and so on. Um, and there will be a lot of uh, telegraphic traffic, email traffic and so on flying around. But meetings is a very big element of it. And we come back to what you were talking about at the beginning, brainstorming. There was going to be a lot of this kind of thing going on before you can get to the position where you can actually put your policies, policy submission through. Sorry? As we did in the first simulation. Yes, yes. I mean, that was a very artificial exercise, a very kind of uh, single-issue exercise, if you like. But uh, that's the sort of thing that you will get. And so then we come to the point where the decision is taken. Who takes the decision? Well, if it's a very serious matter, obviously the decision will be taken by the minister or possibly it may even have to go to cabinet if there are issues to be resolved with other ministries which you haven't been able to resolve uh, between officials. And the minister, let us assume that it is the minister who's going to take the decision, uh, he can really do three things. He can either accept your decision, or he can reject it, or he can say, I'd like to talk about this. I think, you know, there's something here that we need to change slightly and so on. So if he agrees, well then you move to the implementation phase and we're back into another cycle now. Uh, you may be sending out instructions to an ambassador to make a démarche. You may be making a statement to the press. All the things that, again, happened in that first simulation exercise. Or you may need to be commissioning extra work because part of your recommendation may be let us not take a decision on this until we know more about X, Y and Z and we plan to do, find out about this by doing the following uh, additional work. If he rejects it, you're in dead trouble and then you have to start again from scratch. But with a bit of luck, if he rejects it, he'll tell you why he's rejected it and give you an idea of the different direction that you have to go in. I mean, any, 
if, in my experience, any policy submission which is rejected outright by a minister, uh, is, its conception has been flawed in some way. Uh, and the minister himself has not done his job if he has not given a very general steer to his officials about where, broadly speaking, he wants to be going uh, on this issue. But it does happen. It has happened. I've had it, uh, I've had it happen to me where... Um, actually, what happened to me once was that uh, um, a submission was agreed upon within my department. I was the assistant head of the department, and it was ag agreed by my head of department, and it went through to the undersecretary, and he said, I'm not sure that I'm happy with this. And ironically enough, if he had just said to us, I'm not sure I'm happy with this, we would probably have reconstructed it in a slightly different way. But he said, I'm not sure I'm happy with this, and sent it on to the minister. <laughs> so the minister then, what was the minister to do? He had a recommendation from a department. Somebody at more senior level, he said he wasn't happy with it, and it came into the minister's office. It wasn't the foreign secretary, it was a more junior minister, but he was a minister all the same. So we had a meeting, of course, we had a meeting. We had a meeting chaired by the minister with the undersecretary on one side of the table and my head of department and me on the other side of the table. And what happened? The minister said, I fear I must agree with the undersecretary. Of course, because the undersecretary was the senior person uh, and his was the more cautious recommendation. If you want to know what it was about, I'll tell you, it was about supplying night sites to the Cyprus National Guard. I won't tell you which way I recommended or which way the Undersecretary recommended. <laughs> but anyway, he won and we lost. That's, I think, relatively unusual. Particularly today where I think working styles are much more informal, certainly in the British Foreign Office, than they were even 25 years or so ago, which is when I'm talking about. And I think it's much more likely that a phone call will be made and a discussion will be had uh, at a more junior official level and then a, an agreed submission would go on. But, as, I, as we have seen, meetings are a very, very um, frequent phenomenon in this. This is the way in which people get decisions taken when it's not always clear from the outset that they have reconcilable uh, ideas. Get them together around a table, talk about it, and quite often you come out with an agreed position which can then go forward as uh, a policy. Okay, I wanted to leave uh, some time for you to talk about this uh, and tell me what you think about it, whether it in any sense reflects your current experience.